لكل شيء إدامة ما نقصان فلا يغر بطيب العيش إنسان هي الأمور اللهم صلي وسلم على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته and welcome to the Caravanserai. We are your three hosts, Umar, Sadman, and myself, Bilal. And joining us for this episode is a very special guest and a friend of mine, Ustaz Muhammad Pervez. Inshallah, in our discussion today with the Ustaz, we will be talking about the life of a student of knowledge, the nature of seeking knowledge as it currently stands, and the state of Western Muslim affairs. And now I will turn things over to Sadman to give you guys a brief bio about the Ustaz. Take it away, Sadman. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Um, the esteemed chef, he was uh, born and raised in south, southern West Virginia. He holds an undergraduate degree from uh, Haver, Haverford College. I think I said that right, right? Haverford. Uh, where he studied sociology and chemistry, a master's degree in the Middle East studies from the University of Chicago, and a PhD in social, political, ethical, and cultural thought from Virginia Tech. Uh, he taught various courses for five years in the departments of religion and culture, political science, and history at Virginia Tech before joining Darul Qasim. Uh, Dr. Parvez's uh, training in the liberal arts and humanities focuses on secular and religious power and embodiment in modern times, especially the early Turkish Republic, utilizing concepts developed out of the anthropology of the secular and critical theory. Uh, in addition to his studies in the Western Academy, he has studied with Muslim scholars in Amman, Istanbul, and Chicago. His, his initial training in the basic Islamic sciences began with Sheikh Amin at Darul Qasim. He later completed the classical Arabic program at Qasim Institute and continued studying the basic Islamic sciences of Tajweed, Tafsir, Ilm al-Akhlaq, Grammar, Hanafi Law, and the Biography with a number of scholars. So that's our guest today, and I will hand it over to Sheikh Omar to start everything off. Jazakallah khair on Ustaz for joining us today I thought maybe you can kick us off by just telling us more about um, what made you want to study sacred knowledge and um, what's your experience been mostly with it Barakallah fikum to uh, the three of you um, I'm honoured to be here Jazakallah khair and may Allah reward you um, tremendously for your own endeavors. The little bit that I've, I know of the three of you is that um, the question that was just asked, you know, I think is a personal one as well as one that might be um, advisory in nature to other young people who are also considering um, sacred knowledge. Um, so like, sorry, the question is why did I decide to do it? Yeah. So what sort of yeah. sparked your interest uh, initially? Um, to study traditional knowledge and maybe about a bit you can talk about where you studied as well and and what it was exactly sure um, so why I decided to study um, I would just say that it's a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah gives to to whoever Allah wants to give to and not everyone has it not everyone needs to have it um, and so uh, I just wanted to be uh, pious. I, righteousness attracted me. I'm not very good at it, but I liked reading it, and I liked reading, uh, you know, about the lives of, of pious people, um, but also about um, ulama, like academics. Uh, and I don't mean it academic in its contemporary sense. I mean like academic Muslim, in terms of um, both contemporary and classical, um, and. I just never felt I found good role models of that in my life. And it wasn't until I met a few that I thought, hey, this is maybe something worth pursuing. Um, and so I was attracted to both, I think, the, the ulama, traditional scholars, as well as um, Muslims in the West who, were, who had that type of training or company of traditional scholarship but we're also engaged with contemporary questions in the academy. And so I, I think first the short answer is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then the means by which the asbab by which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created that was through, um, I think, interesting people I met and just the questions that they raised, the authors that they talked about, and me just kind of being the fly on the wall, just listening in, not knowing a thing of what was being said, but I felt 
this is something I want to be part of. Okay, well said. Can I ask a follow-up question, if that's okay? Hmm? <clears throat> so did your upbringing in uh, Virginia you know, kind of inform your decision in any way? Like your environment, was it mostly Muslim, non-Muslim, you know? Um, I, I mean, probably so. Um, I think a question like that involves a lifetime thinking it over. Uh, obviously, I grew up in, in a, you know, southern West Virginia is, um, is not, you know, filled with non-Muslims. Sorry, it's not filled with Muslims. It's largely non-Muslim, and I think we all know that. But um, I, I don't think, I think I grew up, you know, wanting to engage with non-Muslims in a somewhat more combative relationship. Uh, like, oh, you know, talking to them, like I'm talking elementary, junior high, even early high school, late high school, I stopped. But, you know, I, I wanted to let them know that, um, like, they weren't the only tradition, Christianity wasn't the only religious tradition that had a hold of, of Musa, alayhi salam, or Isa, alayhi salam, right? And when, when you would tell them that, you know, the story of Eunice, for example, they're just surprised, like you mean the the guy in the whale, um, and they were surprised that you know we also hold that. So, you know those those stories of like Muslims explaining, like the the basics that you know we believe in Mary, we believe in you, and that shocking people, <laughs> that is real, right? Um, that that people don't don't know that that other tradition exists, even though it's been around for a long time, and it's you know, over a billion people are Muslim, they still somehow don't know that. So I just wanted to break that um, from a very young age. Um, why I wanted to do that, I don't know. <laughs> Is this my, my personality, perhaps? Khair, inshallah. Uh, Ustaz, um, what kind of challenges did you face while studying as well? Um, did you get any anything like really challenging in your experiences or was it fairly smooth? <laughs> Well, I would say uh, domestically in the United States, um, the challenges came from family. You know, why are you doing this? Uh, the fear of being labeled uh, a Moldvi uh, or, a, you know, a, in a kind of derogatory sense, a Muslim scholar who's, who's a jahil, right? Who's an ignoramus, who doesn't know anything about the world and all they do is, you know, bicker about, you know, whether this water is permissible to use or not. Right, so, so that's really the kind of um, immigrant South Asian understanding of Islam that they had, quote unquote, escaped and had come to the U.S. And from there, they were going to kind of bring about a, a moderate, enlightened uh, form of Islam to their children. Um, so I think those are the, kind of the domestic issues. So you had to convince family members that you weren't going to be that type of person. Um, and I think abroad the issues were really with government. Um, you know, who are you? Why are you coming to this country? Uh, and why do you want to learn Islam? You know, what's your view on jihad, right? So the, the muhabarat, the secret police, these type of interviews, you know, um, I, I found those frustrating as well as like paperwork, uh, constantly barraging you uh, about um, whether you're allowed to stay and how much longer you're allowed to stay. So that kind of indeterminacy of your future residence in that country was always perplexing to me. But, uh, you know, it, it got cleared up and I was able to spend some time abroad. So it, it was fun. So I hope they didn't give you too much of a hard time, the Mukhabarat, the uh, secret services. No, it's funny. Sorry if I can say something. I would be less worried about the Mukhabarat and more worried about the Desi family mentality. I feel like that's more <laughs> uh, kind of a kind of a burden in the way of studying knowledge. Because I think we can all sympathize uh, with that uh, statement uh, Ustaz Muhammad made. Because mm. we're all South Asians here, and I think uh, we've all, at one level or another, kind of faced that uh, difficulty. Right? You know, is he just going to be the Mulvi, and you know, he's just not doing anything with his life and he doesn't know anything about the world type of thing so i'd rather deal with muhammadat uh, that, that could be personal but i'll let muhammad finish the answer the question sorry no uh yeah i mean i think i was just trying to break it up into domestic and international uh experiences obviously if you're if you're away from family then and, and you're abroad then that that can't really be uh, a visceral experience because they're not with you that might be there in the back of your mind, like 
what type of Muslim is acceptable to your family. Uh, because family pressure is a, is a type of power, and we we have to engage with it whether we like to or, or not. Um, as long as it doesn't, in, you know, um, occlude our niyyah with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala about, you know, how what we're doing, that it, that it be, you know, for Allah's pleasure alone. And so the world will try to, by world I mean dunya in its negative aspect, not its positive aspect, that uh, it will try to um, corrupt the intention. Um, and so you have to try to ward these things off. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 it is that pressure is there with family. But I think the international pressure is a different one. Whether you feel it's a heightened one or a more stressful one will differ, you know, with your experience. That's interesting. Interesting you describe it as like a power, almost a power struggle. Um, what would you advise though, like if someone wants to seek knowledge and the parents are giving them a hard time or anyone in their family, how would they deal with that sort of, uh, that authority, that authority figure in their own family? Yeah, so I would, it depends on who the authority figure is. Uh, if it's, I don't know, your younger sister, maybe you can be dismissive of it, but still listen to her. You know, you do have to listen to her and, and just let her know, um, okay, I've heard you. And, and I'm going to think about it and make a decision, right? But if it's uh, uh, your parents, then you do have to listen to it with more attention. And um, I think it, it would require some kind of balancing act where you have to, um, in a way, perform a, a role uh, for, for them, <laughs> So it's a type of performance uh, that that will put them at ease. Well, they they will see that okay, you know, you're grounded. You have some kind of stability in front of you. And then they will be fine. And always time heals things. So even if they're not convinced, say in your first month, maybe uh, year three, year four, if they see that you're committed, that this is something you're serious about they'll have to accept it and they'll do it in their own way. So would you say that uh, for, you know, someone that does want to seek knowledge and they're getting some pushback from their parents that they should kind of go forward, even if their parents are against it, because eventually they'll kind of come around type of thing. Yeah. I, I mean, um, if the parents are Muslims, right. Um, they, so yeah, this is going to be very different from like someone who converts to Islam. So we're talking about people who are raised in a Muslim family, but they're somewhat skeptical. The, the parents of that family are skeptical of uh, religious uh, tr you know, training in, in its traditional sense. Um, so obviously we can have a conversation about how that thinking itself comes about, but I, I, I don't think that's, that's the time or place right now. Um, how the child of those parents are supposed to then um, continue to both please their parents by, say, having a bachelor's degree or um, something beyond that, or just by having a good job that pays money where the parents will say, okay, I can um, see my child having financial stability. That's very important. And I mean, now that I'm a parent, I, I see that and I respect that view of my parents that they just really wanted that stability for me um, and then uh, continue to do your traditional learning in some capacity and they will see that um, you know you're you're doing this the best that you can and then they will uh, agree inshallah I think their hearts you have to make dua that Allah you know sway their hearts towards you that whatever you're doing um, that they can you know that Right? These are dua that the Prophet encourages us to say about that Allah is the one in control of the heart. So, so oh Allah, you know, turn my parents' hearts towards what I'm doing that is, you know, uh, learning, learning deen for your sake, something like that, right? Um, and inshallah, we hope to see positive effects. Ustaz, um, you mentioned earlier as well how parents might think that 
or they have the fear that their child might become this sort of stereotypical ignorant uh, Maulana or Sheikh type figure, um, which ties into another question we wanted to ask you, which is like the whole traditional um, Islamic education is often seen as not being not equipping its students of dealing with modern society, modern problems. Um, so do you believe that to be the case? I mean, I, you did say you mentioned with both, you studied both with uh, scholars in the West and traditional ones. So is there a sort of a balance that one should have with both these fears? Um, yeah, the madrasa. So I think the madrasa is both a, a place, okay, meaning a, a tangible, physical, you know, existing thing in the world. For some people, it isn't that, it's a concept. Um, and for other places, it's like a culture. So what do I mean? So um, the Madaris in South Asia, they are typically physical places, right? But then you might have Muslims who reside in, this, in, in those in South Asia who don't go to the Madaris. They, they for them represent an idea or a type of person, a representation, um, and they, they might find it good, they might find it bad, or they don't care, right? They, it's just not something in their life. They just care about, um, you know, uh, making, making ends meet for the day, okay? Um, and then um, you have like a madrasa culture. So a culture would be people who live their lives like a madrasa student would. Um, but they're not students. They're just parents. They're, um, they have homes. They have restaurants. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, if you walk in, you're hearing them talk uh, law. You're hearing them talk theology. Um, and, and sometimes they just care about being, being, having good behavior, using Islamic sources as that. And so um, it's not madrasa per se, but it's there on the streets. Uh, and I've seen some of that too, you know, in, in Muslim society. So um, I, I think a, a good way to think about this question that you've asked is to just acknowledge that there's truth in, there's a truth in what people are saying. So um, I think if you were to compare a madrasa graduate with um, a, a bachelor's or a master's graduate from a Western university, you would see uh, stark differences and they themselves acknowledge that like both acknowledge that and the way that they were formed by the knowledge that they have um, and they're they do very different things the madrasa is a lived tradition so they're trying to instill um, a particular form into you through following the uh, the the sunnah of the rasul or like the 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 you know learning the the precepts of the Quran, um, uh, understanding how to follow a rule, right? Um, so all of this is about making Islam indistinguishable from your life. But um, what you're going to get in, in the academy is a little different, and I don't want to jump the gun here, but it's more about analyzing um, how that life is formed in the first place. Um, and, and there are... Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll just leave it there. But I, I think when we hear um, some criticisms about the madrasa, those are probably there. Okay, now I haven't studied in a traditional madrasa. I've just studied traditionally. And what's, what that means is like um, I usually study privately with scholars in their apartment home um, or something like that. Uh, but in an actual madrasa, I've, I have visited many madaris but I haven't actually studied there. But uh, I do know that there are problems, problems of um, just sincerity of students, poverty, um, uh, acts of, of homosexuality. Uh, those aren't, that doesn't mean they're homosexual. It's just that sometimes that they engage in this act. So these type of things are, are there. Um, so there's no point in trying to, you know, say that they don't exist. But we shouldn't publicize these type of things. We should just try to deal with them. And they're often the case because there are students who are coming from 
um, difficult backgrounds like abusive parents um, or converts who don't know where to go. Um, and so, you know, what are the, the teachers supposed to do? You know, they're asked to make, um, you know, pious creatures out of, out of um, uh, you know, soil that, that is not fertile. Right, so it's a difficult thing to do, um, but um, at the same time, I think those criticisms can go too far when you say that there's nothing useful that is produced out of out of an institution like that. I think that's very dangerous. Um, even saying that uh, these institutions shouldn't engage with uh, contemporary knowledge, I think, is very dangerous. And if you want to know really more about that, I would recommend Ibrahim Musa's book, um, What is a Madrasa? I think he tries to deal with this um, much better than I can say in a few minutes. Okay, that's, that's, uh, there's a lot to unpack there, and, and we will come back to a lot of that uh, later on. But I think right now we kind of still want to talk about seeking knowledge and some of the difficulties uh, involved uh, in that. Mm. So we have a question here from our very own Sadman. You know, is it possible uh, to be a student studying abroad at the same time and be able to get married? Sadman's asking that question? Um, <laughs> not personally, but I... <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a Sadman. Uh, was trying that. to put me under the bus. So. No, no I, man, you're being, you're being quiet, we, man. Oh, no, I didn't want to interrupt, that's why. But um, I just uh, was thinking about people when we go, or students when we go abroad, some of the challenges that we face. So maybe... Uh, maybe you face this uh, challenge yourself, so maybe there's an answer in that. I mean, when we were talking about these questions, well, already put me on the bus with this question, and I was like, <laughs> okay, let's let's not put it in there. <laughs> but uh, he got a shot, so maybe you can shed some light on that. No, but uh, all jokes aside, it is a serious question because mm -hmm. for people that do want to go overseas, they, they do need to know th know these things. So, good question, Sadman. So, I think there there's a danger dangerous side to this, and then there's a productive side to this. So. Let's start with the, the dangerous. Um, when I first went abroad to study, I was unmarried and, you know, living with a bunch of guys close to my age, right? And often I found the discussions about women that I, I also participate, participated in was, you know, the frustration of not being able to get married, um, of, of not being able to date and how we lived in a society that didn't understand rejecting dating as an institution. Uh, and, you know, just the fear of how much longer do I have to wait? Um, and that's a, that's a genuine fear for someone who wants to stay within the hudud of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right. It's a genuine uh, concern. Yeah. Um, when I went abroad the second time I was married by then, and um, it was a, a much different experience. I mean, I, I wasn't really hanging around with, with the younger men. Um, and I think being married uh, allowed me to focus on my studies more than, you know, uh, thinking about getting married or, or women in general. Like women, women as a concept, an ideal concept, right? And so... I think it helped my studies tremendously being married because I didn't have to worry about that issue. Um, however, I, I do find the way that young Muslim men talk about marriage, the way they talk about marriage, it can be, um, it just can be counterproductive to their aims, their aspirations. Um, even I think it's more like a frustration that's coming out more than right. That. Exactly, yeah. it's usually a frustration. Like we're talking about it, just trying to get it out, get it off your chest. Yeah, um, yeah, just bottled up feelings. I think. So, Muhammad, yeah. would you say it's more like a, I guess, kind of like a, like an actual physical frustration, right, with these people that are going through this? What do you mean? Like I, I can see that they're physically frustrated. How how else could I see frustration? No, no. What, what I mean, like it's more That's like you know, like like my yeah, like biologically, my time has come, and then they just want oh, okay. to like, you know, get married, right? Or or is it or is an actual psychological need like they actually need to get married because they need the companionship, or is it more just a, a, a bodily response to something they need? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it could be many things, and people respond differently um, to to sex, right? So I didn't, I, I didn't believe that for a long time. I thought, no, like young men, that's just what they're going to want. But um, you you meet interesting people throughout your lives, and you you find people, you know, in their mid thirties who say, you know, I'm just not not interested right now. Uh, and you wonder how that can be, but um, um, it, it 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 exists. It's out there. So uh, I think that the what Islam quote unquote says is that it's still good to try and, and marry early, and there is great wisdom in that. But at the same time, um, you do have to look at um, your economic condition, what you're able to do, the you know the the person you want to marry, the family, um, their economic condition. I mean, there's there's a lot to consider uh, to have a long-lasting happy marriage because i think we all probably know people that were studying and then they got married and then they just sort of dropped off the map you know they just got busy into chasing livelihood for their families and ah, their yes so. yes that okay so that i can address so that was a great concern for me because i met many i think very talented people who looked like they had a lot of promise and the study um you know, studying Islam, but not just that. I mean, giving it back to the community, and um, yeah, you would find that they were co-opted in some way to go into medical school, and and then from there they ended up getting married, and they kept saying, "Yeah, I'm still going to study. I'm still going to study Islam," um, and then they have a child, and then it never happened. And I kept telling myself. I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> uh, and like, no matter what, and I'll, I'll spend whatever resources I have to, to make sure I, I get something. And that was just my mindset. Like um, the world can end, but I'm going to learn some Arabic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> coronavirus is going to happen, but I'm going to learn some Arabic. Um, that, that was my mindset then. And I, I suspect there's some, still some uh, residue from that with me i think we can uh, go into the next question which sort of ties in with this is um as a student of knowledge what kind of career path can one look for in the future and is there any income attached to that uh, i think this is a huge part in deciding if you want to pursue knowledge from the beginning because personally i've uh, met and talked to a lot of people who uh, are hesitant about studying knowledge because they they're like okay so what are you going to do after you finish studying like for us in UIA, um, it's a four-year degree, right? And usually if you come back to the West with this degree, you don't, um, you know, it's hard to find a job and these kind of things. So maybe you can shed some light on that. I don't think I'm uh, equipped to answer this question, actually, um, in the sense that, um, well, I mean, I guess perhaps I don't understand the question because um, the talib ilm, the, the seeker of knowledge isn't really doing it for dunya. Um, but, but at the same time, what does that mean? Not, not doing something for dunya, right? That your intention is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because you can do anything with an intention and it's, it could be accepted or it could be rejected. Right? So, um, we, we, you know, people often like to turn back to the, the story of Imam Ghazali, rahimullah, when, uh, during the, um, uh, in, in Baghdad, when Nidham al-Mulk is going around the madrasa asking students, you know, what, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And everyone's saying, oh, I want to be a judge and I want to be this and I want to be that. And, you know, Nidham al-Mulk is disappointed and eventually he comes across Ghazali and he says, I'm doing this lillahi subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, like that's it. And then Nizam al-Mulk decided to keep the madrasa open. Okay, it's a, it's a bit of a, uh, idealization, I think, of the story. But I, I, what, what we get here is that um, if your intention is to like, learn this stuff to become a judge or to become somebody in your community, then there's, there can be a danger there. But at the same time, you can't say that the judge isn't of use or isn't doing something mandated in our tradition, right? No, we feel you, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, the, the Qadi has a role uh, in, in the sense that 
the state kind of needs people to do judgment. Um, but at the same time, the Prophet said, you know, the judge is, is between um, the, the ghadab of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the, the knife of people, right? It's a very dangerous place to be because if you, if you judge wrong, I mean, unjustly, you have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to deal with. But then you also have pressure from people. So a judge has to be a kind of really upright, moral, um, sound person. Um, just like the witness has to be um, that the that the judge speaks to, so I, I think there's a lot of room for maneuverability here. You don't have to have the most perfect intention if there is such a thing uh, when you start learning. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala gives us time uh, to to con you know always work on ourselves, work on our intention, and so maybe you didn't have it right then, but maybe ten years later you understood that actually. It is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and, and doing it for any other reason doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, but if you don't get that at 18 or 20 or 22, it's okay. Just keep doing what you're doing, um, and inshallah you'll get it. But if you, if you still have a, if your intentions still like to, to impress people, and when you're 60 or 70, then, you know, um, there, there are traditions that say you, that person needs to prepare for the hellfire. Subhanallah. It's so, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, no. Man. Go ahead, Omar. You're fine. I just, it was interesting you said that as well because I, I remember hearing a quote. I think it was from Sufyan Athori. I'm not sure, but he said uh, we started seeking knowledge for the dunya, but knowledge demanded that it be sought for none other than Allah. Like yeah. At the end. So, that's right. That's right. So, yeah. That's right. Oh yeah. So uh, sorry. I was gonna say then. You know, so let's say there is a student out there and he does want to study knowledge, but he is, uh, you know, worried about potential income. Would you advise that guy or anyone here can answer this question, I guess? Um, you know, for example, study your, you know, Arabic, but then also pursue a, another degree concurrently, like, you know, uh, computer science or English or whatever you want to do and kind of, so you can kind of support yourself that way. Because I've seen this model actually work uh, pretty well. Like they'll spend some time either doing their, you know, Islamic studies first for a few years and then bounce back, get another degree, and then use that second degree to support themselves. Or they'll do their kind of secular uh, conventional degree first, then and then use that to support themselves while they're doing the Islamic studies. But do you think this type of structure really allows for one to kind of you know, really have time to study the Islamic studies as much as they would like? Or are they just dividing their time unnecessarily? Yeah, I mean, you, when you have to live two lives like that, if unless you have uh, a remarkable amount of discipline, um, you're not going to you're going to be disappointed or lose out in one of those two fields of knowledge, either the Islamic knowledge or the um, you know the practical skills knowledge, right? Um, say having an IT degree or something. Um, but I mean, what are you supposed to do? Like, if you you know you you need to get married, um, your parents are aging, you you know you're having children to take care of. Eventually, um, you will have to give weight to your to the to the job that gives you money, um, and you will just do that. And there will be Muslim scholars and even arguments from the tradition that will say you need to do that because that's where Allah wants you to be now. Right? Maybe Allah doesn't. Maybe what's best for you isn't learning Arabic right now. Maybe what's best for you isn't learning the arkan that you already know. <laughs> okay, that you already know the arkan of Islam, uh, and you do them, mashallah. Uh, you just want to read it again in another book. So ordinary life, um, you know, and I don't say ordinary in a, in a belittling way. It's just we, we all are in ordinary life. There's no escaping it. Um, and there's, there's a beauty in that because only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Jalla Jalalu, is, is above ordinary. Um, so I think it just it will take over. Um, there, there was a, uh, a story of a, of a man in his uh, 40s who you know, left everything and, uh, in, in the States and went to study in, at one of the madaris in Karachi, and he was approached by the, the head scholar, and he said, this isn't for you now. 
you need to go back and take care of your family and that's what Allah wants you to do. If you're doing anything otherwise, right, then you're just following your own shahwat, right? Your what you want to do, but you know, Allah is, is trying to guide you into what you know is best for you, but you you think it's something else. Um, and I think the fear that some of the you know people you know young young Muslims have is that well I lost my chance you know I lost my chance to study Islam and um, I would just say no right you still have life there's still um, you know Allah is constantly teaching us um, and it it doesn't have to be through a book of fiqh you know you don't you don't want to go to your wife uh, you know in a relationship of fiqh. You want to go to her in a relationship of, of love, um, and that, that will just come through life, right? Uh, fiqh is there to show you more or less the, the, the contours of the law, the, the bare minimums of the law, what is permissible, what's not, and then what's good to do in it. But it's not a manual of how to live life, right? The manual of how you live your life is the sunnah. And so um, I think sometimes the, you know, there's a confusion in what the disciplines of knowledge are supposed to do for for the believer because I think we've put them in the in the wrong place. Um, so, should you get this type of degree to to make money? I wouldn't say I would say no. Right, do something else uh, to do that. And if you want to do it for that, well, don't have very high expectations. You know, more than say university instructor or even a tenured professor, fifty, sixty thousand. I think. I wouldn't expect more than that. Um, sometimes, you know, communities fund someone to go abroad and, and learn, and then they come back and, and assist the community. Um, but I think otherwise, if you, if you don't have a community funding you, you need a lot of stored capital to go out and do something like that. It's just balancing the both. That's the issue I think students come across is balancing the dunya while trying to study abroad because um, finances become an issue uh, if you're not working and if you're relying on your parents. Uh, I think that's where my question was more directed towards is that how do you balance it instead of, it's not the intention, but more of uh, finding a way to make it work. Uh, I think that's the, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I again, I would just say that um, you either need an incredible amount of discipline, and there are people like that, and when you meet them, you know, they're, they're both a great doctor and they're a great you know, um, instructor of the Islamic sciences. When you meet them, you're impressed and you, you feel in a good way, hey, I, I, can, I can try to do this too. Uh, but not everyone's like that. For some people, I think it's, um, you know, I, I need to just do this one thing right. and um, go, go through with it. But then, you know, you, you don't want to look back at that experience if you're not making enough money to say, um, have have a marriage or have children or something like that, and and look back at it negatively. Now, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is our provider, right? We we all agree to that. Um, right, of course. But you don't want to look back and start now the bilah, God forbid, blaming God for a decision that you of made. <laughs> um, right, <laughs> and that does happen. Unfortunately, it does happen with some people that you know they they took time out, they did it, and then they're like, I don't I don't know why I did it. I regretted that. Mm -hmm. and I should have done something else. Um, but so. but I think that also uh, speaks to the issue of how you how people conceptualize uh, seeking knowledge. People are under the impression I have to go overseas and I have to be in the thick of it and I have to be you know studying in this sheikh's house. But I think you know after having studied overseas and maybe you guys would agree with me, I think a lot of that can be done from uh, the United States or even from your house now. And while I think there's a certain element. Uh, is lost because I think going overseas, there there is something that you learn in that alone. But even right. if you learn uh, domestically wherever you're at, I don't think that's a bad thing. But people get caught up, especially if they're young. This is something I suffered from. Maybe you guys as well. I have to be over there because that's where it's at. But that's not the case. Your religion is everywhere. You can learn it anywhere. So I don't know what to think about that, Muhammad. Well, well, what do you, what do Omar Salman think of Bilal's remarks? I mean, that's one of our questions. Can you learn the deen at home? Uh, and Arabic uh, yeah. at the same time, right? No, but I, I, I like can. your answer yeah. to that. Uh, yes, I'm can. on the spot. Yeah. Or Omer, yeah. Oh, you know, last year, oh, sure. Uh, yeah. I think uh, I agree with Bilal. It's doable, especially now. There's a lot of things online. 
um, that directly teach you Quranic Arabic slowly step by step uh, and if you just go through it and maybe uh, make dua it's really easy to learn Quranic Arabic and now in terms of maybe proper Arabic speaking and reading these kind of things uh, a lot of immersion is needed I think because when I went overseas and I started immersing with people speaking Arabic writing and reading um, it was it became much easier but if I was here trying to learn Arabic by myself, it's uh, at least the speaking and all the other stuff, it's harder. But like my parents, they they taught themselves Quranic Arabic sitting here. So, I mean, maybe I should learn from them because I left and I'm still trying to do that, right? So, Just one concern, I of course, is that discipline aspect. But one concern I have with studying at home is... You really miss out on that sohbet, that sort of accompanyship of the sheikh, which yeah. Um, yeah. gives so much of, instills so much of that adab and sort of, it's like his, his taqwa sort of transfers to you, you know? That's um, right. That's right. So, so studying at home, you sort of really miss out on that. So I think you somehow I mean, you, need you to find that. You can still get that, you can get that taqwa through Skype, you know, it can, it can help <laughs> that way, right? So, I mean, it's not, uh, it's not lost on... You know, in that sense. But sorry, I cut you off, man. Yeah. What would you think about that, Ustaz? Well, I, I don't know. I feel you, you both have already said, um, you know, you've, you've already answered it. Um, I think for yourselves and, and for me, um, I, I would say that uh, it's, it's a debated thing. Clearly, like Bilal's someone in favor of, um, uh, after having gone abroad, by the way, <laughs> You know, feels yeah, that you know, uh, feels that you know, he can he can get things done here. Um, I myself continue to have you know Skype classes with um, you know my ustad from Syria, and um, you know I I do feel taqwa. You know, uh, I feel like I have to be on good behavior with him, and it's nothing that he has done. It's just um, I think the his his um, his hal brings that out of me. Um, and so that is there other institutions like the one that me and Bilal went to Qasid everything's online now Um, I I think that obviously the virus has a lot to do with that Um, and I I think what Umar is saying about suhba I think that's that's what we really go for I think we think we we can get these things say from you know we can learn some Arabic in the university we can um, uh, learn uh, from our local imam, but why don't why don't we really do that, right? We can learn from our parents more, perhaps. Why don't we do that? Well, we want mm-hmm. we want a kind of reversal of experience. We want to know what it feels like when Muslims are the majority. Um, and I, I know people like to romanticize, you know, uh, oh, you just want to hear the adhan out there, and you know, it's just you're like a romantic Muslim. <laughs> well, okay, so what if I am? You know, I mean, I. I'd like to hear it. I mean, it is nice. Um, it's it is really nice. Walking out there and having that, you know. Um, but at the same time, you you have to also know that um, you might be looking at that world with, you know, rosy colored glasses. And, um, you know, yeah. Muslims are, yeah. are humans and they're going to, you know, they're going to commit zina. They're going to, they're going to... Um, like interest, they're going to drink <laughs> alcohol. Um, yeah. And uh, when you would first encounter that, I remember when I first did, I thought when I first went to Jordan, I, I made it to the promised land. And I thought, well, what is this? <laughs> and I'm not talking right. about not having TV no, or like... that. I'm talking about the people. And so exactly. you, know, you had to grow up fast. Um, like oh, you okay. knew that your, your view of Islam was um, a little too romantic. I think one uh, small point that I want to add is uh, one thing you miss out if you don't go abroad is uh, growing. Uh, the huge part of growth, leaving home and uh, going through all the tri- you know trials and tribulations you go through while studying abroad, uh, it really changes you as a human being and as a person. So uh, I don't think you receive that uh, sitting at home uh, trying to uh, learn Arabic or whatever because I've seen it in myself. Uh, if I like or among my friends, I've I'm I'm like the only one who's left, and the last four years I've changed a lot compared to them. So, I mean, you can still change here, and there, there's ability to do that. But I feel like when you're pushed to go outside, and you're the 
the forces, they change you. And if it's for the better or for the worse, I don't know. But if your intentions are there, hopefully it becomes for the better, I think. Yeah, I mean, that sounds right. Um, I, I think a general rule, which I was once told, was, um, you know, take whatever you can locally and then uh, go abroad. Um, and I, right. I think definitely for Arabic, I mean, I tried for many years uh, in the United States learning Arabic and it just didn't work out. And one year in Jordan, I was I was running with it, you know. Um, so right. now it could be that I, I had very good grounding, um, you know, with what I received in the States, which made it easy for me to just take off um, when I went abroad. But, um, yeah, that that's how I, you know, I, I felt leaving the country was um, good. But I, I don't necessarily recommend that for everyone. Um, I just say it, it, it was very good in my experience, and I think especially for learning Arabic, um, it was it was excellent. Yeah, I think uh, with that, we can kind of talk about kind of the current state of knowledge seeking. I know we touched on this just a little bit uh, earlier on, but we can kind of maybe go into some more depth here. So as someone who has studied uh, Islam in a traditional and academic uh, environment, which setting would you say is more conducive to producing Muslims who are equipped to deal with uh, the current issues that Muslims are facing. That's um, a tough question. We apologize, but <laughs> it needs it needs to be answered by someone because I'm looking for an answer. So <laughs> good. Those are the best questions. Then, and I'll just begin. I think by problematizing the question a little and saying that um, uh, you, uh, you know, it's it seems like you've you're splitting um, that life into two by saying that there's the the mother of life and then there's the academic life. But I want to suggest, of course, that madrasas themselves produce great academics. Um, they might not be the ones that you know, but you know all the great Islamic luminaries came from those institutions um, in, in one way or another. Um, I so I think if we come across, uh, we, we've had a lot of Muslim academics, okay, in, in terms of their association with Western universities. For over a hundred years, and um, they they have produced great works, but I, we you know there was a sense in me at least that I wasn't impressed with how they were living. You know, like mm. why is it that they can't represent Islam the way that the ulama can? And maybe it's because of you know social and political pressures that they just weren't able to. Um, but you know. You know, I, I guess I was impressed with, um, uh, what's a good example today? Like Dr. Uh, Dr. Khaled Blankenship, okay, in Philadelphia. Mm. Um, he's older, but um, he is someone, well, he's also a, a, someone who converted to Islam, but, you know, he spent a lot of time in Egypt and, and then, you know, decided, you know, I think I can get a PhD and decided to go to University of Washington, got it. And he's, he's been in teaching and, you know, chair of the Department of Religion in Philadelphia at Temple University for, you know, longer than most of us have been alive, right? Um, so I think that is a, an example. There are others like Dr. Sherman Jackson. I think when you read some of his work, this is someone who also spent a lot, a lot of time in Egypt but then knew how to, you know, converse in, in very eloquent language the problems that, say, uh, immigrant Muslims are encountering in relation with the African-American community. Um, and then other more, more you know, um, detailed discussions on, um, on, you know, Islamic law and usul al-fiqh and how that pertains to, like, living in a non-Muslim society. So... Um, there, there are those people. I think someone who just uh, had no training, absolutely no training, and they got everything from, you know, uh, from Harvard or University of Toronto or something. That just um, you, you feel there is something that that is missing there. At least I did. Um, I think for me, they just kind of inhabited um, a white form of life, and I don't mean white as like a color here. I mean white as a power structure. Um, that tends to inhabit, um, you know, th those type of universities. And so I think they just kind of um, embodied that, that life. And I said, well, that's not a life that impresses me. 
is I already know what that life is. Um, and so, yeah, for me, you, you, you needed to have both. And it's becoming more and more the norm in terms of um, the kind of social capital that's expected, the social utility of those degrees, um, that people will just pay you ear because they're not going to listen to the Molvi, even though you guys might be saying the same thing. Right, so sometimes it's how you say it. It's it's a rhetoric. Um, it's the fact that you speak without, um, you know, an accent. Some, you know, those things matter to a lot of people, and it's, do, yeah. it's still why um, the white Muslim scholar in America has more credence than um, a brown a brown one, because a a black African American or a white convert um, is seen as uh, indigenous, right? Even though the the South Asian scholar could be saying the same thing, but he's saying it, say, with an accent, or he he studied, um, you know, in South Asia, and he didn't study, say, Greek philosophy, so he can't speak about Aristotle, he can't speak of Plato, um, he can't speak of contemporary philosophers. So, um, in, in that way, I sent I say sometimes these degrees are performances, right? They're used in that sense. So you have to be careful there. Okay. Uh, right. that's, sorry. So, were you no, go ahead, bro. Oh, no. I was going to say, just a kind of a follow-up to that, um, you know, if more and more of the masses of Muslims, especially in the West, are kind of turning turning to more towards academics who are less spiritually trained, isn't that doesn't that potentially uh, have the uh, well potential to have a negative impact on the Ummah? It's going to become... Sure. More, yeah. more of a like you said, it's going to feed into that white kind of power structure, and it's it's going to lose a lot in the process, right? I think we're we're sort of seeing that now in the way Muslim social justice warriors are kind of leaning towards Muslims in academia, academia rather than let's say the traditional madrasa uh, kind of scholars. And I I think personally it's a problem. I don't know how Umar and Sadman feel about it. Umar Sadman, do you want to comment? <laughs> No, I don't want to comment. You can go ahead. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like Muhammad's the co-host now. I mean, you guys are you guys are saying anything? So, <laughs> um, I no, but, the, the only thing I would say is really, um, like it's it's of course permissible for Muslims to do political work, to do political outreach, um, but just engage with an Islamic ethos. Um, otherwise, see, and, and that's the problem. Yeah. Sorry, I need to cut you off here. Mm -hmm. What does engaging with an Islamic ethos mean? Because someone out there could think, for example, you know, working with, let's say, uh, a homosexual lobby is within the Islamic ethos. And you might have someone else on the opposite spectrum who says it's absolutely not. But th those ethoses are informed by different teachers. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So let me give you an example. So if you're going to go out and rally for Black Lives Matter, Bismillah. Go ahead and do it. But don't skip Dhuhr prayer to do it. Don't skip Asr prayer. Don't not fast if it happens to be a day of Ramadan. Um, uh, you know, uh, do dhikr while you're doing it. Uh, so uh, when, when I say ethos, I mean, that's not a great word, but um, practices, perhaps. I mean, uh, yeah, arkan, but I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of Muslims who don't do those things, um, and that's not okay. But at the same time, uh, you know, we shouldn't be people to um, push them away. And um, you know, I I have kind of been trained into thinking of Islam as something discursive, and I know that's a rather obnoxious word to use, a bit too academic perhaps. But what that kind of means is that. Um, Islam is a lived thing, but it is also a debated thing. And the manner in which one lives is evident on how they, um, their relationship with that tradition. Okay, so you, in a way, Islam is something, or Christianity, or forms of secularism, in a way can become imprinted on one's body. Right, the way they want that one lives, and so uh, all I ask is that if if you wish to participate politically, um, you may do so, but do so through the lens and the lived life of the Prophet meaning 
what does that mean in a very basic sense? That uh, if you're going to rally, don't miss your prayer. In fact, what you should do is uh, get a jama'ah of people and pray. Right? Why not do that? And especially if it's about you know the lives of black people. Well, guess what? A lot of them were Muslims, and um, if if people see that, it could be a form of um, you know of, of doing dawah. Right now. That's not really the, the goal of, say, Black Lives Matter or the goal of, you know, um, say, homosexual rights in the United States, like Ilhan Omar is having to deal with. You know, people feel like she's being co-opted into this uh, kind of liberal language that she herself doesn't agree with um, in Minnesota. Um, and sometimes, you know, politics is like that. It's messy and you just, you know, you have to sometimes compromise on on those things. But that's different than asking Ilhan Omar, you know, does she believe that homosexuality is permissible in Islam? Right? That's her, her political position is could be very different from uh, her personal, say, theological one. Um, and so, I, you know... That's sometimes... an interesting way to look at it, but that requires a lot of nuance uh, mm -hmm. and... You know, on behalf of kind of the the, uh, the person looking uh, at yeah. that type of thing, and I, and I feel like most most people nowadays, not just Muslims, aren't you know going to look at the nuances. They're just going to see something like a picture of someone, a prominent Muslim, posing with, you know, let's say, you know, like you know, the homosexual lobby, and then they're going to just jump to conclusions based off of that. They're not going to look at it the sure. way you just said. Sure. So that's that's um... interesting. But, well, I mean, I guess it's doing husnul dhan for people, just thinking well of them and um, wishing wishing them well. Yep. By the way, it doesn't happen here. I mean, there was um, one of the uh, top scholars in in Cairo uh, made a comment, a kind of inter um, interreligious comment that uh, you know that about Christians and Jews and everyone's fine and. Um, and, uh, you know, some say that he was co-opted even by the uh, CC government to, to say something like that. And that, so that's been going on for like a long time in, in Muslims, Muslim civilization. And Muslims shouldn't be like uh, frightened or sad that that happens. I mean, it's just um, that's what happens when you engage in politics. Politics is, uh, you know, brutally pragmatic. And if some of those pragmatics mean getting rid of your personal moral principles, then then fine. <laughs> and uh, it's it's nasty to say that. Perhaps it's it's Machiavellian to assert that uh, in in life today. Maybe politics wasn't like that a thousand years ago, but it it happens to be the way it is now. And so there there is a lot lost, Bilal, definitely a lot of spirituality lost in these type of engagements. So all we ask is, um, if you're going to um, engage, just do what is asked of you as a bare minimum as a Muslim, and don't don't rescind those things. Okay, that, that's a that's a fair way to look at it, uh, and we can go down that rabbit hole uh, for quite some time. But I think we'll kind of yeah. move on uh, and talk about your uh, PhD, you know, in, in critical theory and how it kind of fits uh, into the Islamic uh, framework. Should talk about that a bit, or uh, <laughs> that would that would take some time. Um, I think. Let's see. How can I address that? Um, I would say, well, like, what is critical theory? I think a lot of people don't know what critical theory is, and I, I certainly didn't when I started. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't now. So if you could explain yeah. that, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> not so simple to explain, even though I'm, I'm done with it. But I would say. One of the ways you can approach it, and perhaps the way I did, is thought that is critical of modernity. Okay. Okay, it's interesting because it's um, it's it's heavily invested in the modern problem. So things like before the nineteenth century, you don't really see critical theorists engaging with any of that. So I, I'm not really the kind of um, the scholar of, of like 12th century Baghdad and Islamic studies um, who looks at the work of a particular scholar. I mean, those things are out there and there's a good use for it. Um, but I think I, I just never wanted to neglect the 
the life that I have, right, that I'm, I'm living in now, um, appreciating classical scholarship, but having to deal with, you know, problems that I, I encounter and trying to understand where those problems came from. Um, and so that's what got me to, to get interested in how um, theorists, theorists is just a fancy word for, uh, you know, a sophisticated thinker, okay? <laughs> um, and, and someone, uh, so I, I think there's a lot of overlap. Um, if you're critical of, of things happening in your life, and you think it has to do with this um, quote-unquote power structure, as a word I mentioned earlier, that you're living in, then I think there's a lot of overlap with critical theory and Islam. For example, um, the Prophet said that, you know, the, the first three generations are the best, right? right? And then after that, there'll just kind of be this dilution of the ummah. So um, if someone, now occasionally, it's not like a, a total downward slide. Um, you have these mujaddids, right? These people who come and they, Allah inspires them to inspire yeah. other people. And so you have this kind of spike that comes again. But then guess what? People are just going to become diluted, D minus Muslims again. And so we're, we're all stuck in that now, right? For example, um, cap, you know, interest is everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. There's there's really no escaping it. Um, uh, the sexuality, okay. Right. Um, how do you escape like that type of seduction? Um, so so you see, there are already ways that Muslims can critique uh, modern forms of life that don't resemble the way a non-Muslim would critique it, and I think they might find right. it very interesting. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of useful um, synergy that can be done with critical theory in Islam. But I, I don't think, uh, I think a lot of Muslims are fearful of it too, because they think it's been um, taken over by, you know, Michel Foucault and the French school and the Frankfurt school and, you know, Martin Heidegger and these kind of fancy names. Um, but I, I think there is, there's a lot of nonsense there and there's, um, there's a lot of good to work with and to be able to sift out the good from the bad, you need to ar have already been trained somewhat uh, by, by Muslims and how to think and approach things through the prophetic lens. Um, and, and, you know, there's going to be people critical of you. You know, I once had a scholar in Amman, he asked me what I was going to do. And I said, you know, I, I've just accepted this PhD position and I'm going to go do it. And he wanted to know what it was about. And he said, why are you doing that? You know, um, um, I said, look, I, I think there's, I'm just going to try it. There's something useful there. And he said, look, if you, this is what he said to me. And he's a great scholar, mashallah. He said, um, if you sift through trash, you will find something useful in it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you're going to find like, some vitamin C. You're going to find some, um, I don't know, uh, chicken bone, I don't know, but you're going to find something. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's best that you, um, you stay, uh, he wanted me to stay there in Amman and keep, uh, keep studying. Um, and you know, I, I, I didn't end up taking that advice, but I, it, his words resonate with me, uh, very much. And it's good because it allows me to be critical of the knowledge that I have. Right, that okay. it allows you to yeah. be critical of critical theory. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of nonsense in it. Um, there definitely is. So uh, I, but the the little bit, the sliver that I was able to engage with, I had a great time with it. Um, it primarily focuses around the the work of Talal Asad. So he's an anthropologist uh, in New York City. Um, and he, he's the son, actually, of Muhammad Asad. I don't know if any of you know Muhammad Asad. Uh, the, is that the yeah, author of Journey to Mecca, is it? That's right, that's right. Uh, oh, he wrote wow. Journey to Mecca. Okay. Yeah, so, um, yeah, he, he had this, I think his work alone brought me into critical theory. And he, he was introduced to, his work was introduced to me by a traditionally trained Muslim scholar. So, you see, for me, it all connects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it all connects. Yeah, a mufti from South Asia told me about his Talas's work, and I said, "Okay, I'll I'll take a look at it." And um, I I haven't really 
turn back. Uh, I find it very engaging. Well, I'm sure we'll have to bring you on again for another talk just specifically about your your thesis. But now we can kind of run into our last segment here, which has to do with kind of current issues facing Western uh, Muslims. And I guess in our case, because you're in the United States, you can talk a little bit about kind of uh, the situation for Muslims uh, in the United States. So what do you think is kind of the, the greatest shortcoming right now of the current Muslim leadership in the U.S.? If we want to go there, we don't have to go there. We can we can back off now, or um, yeah, let's let's do something else. I don't know. I'm not really in a leadership position, um, and I, I find that it's very hard uh, because you know our communities are um, people from all different types of schools of thought, um, from different cultures, different languages. So you know everything kind of ends up being an umbrella organization in America and you can't really grow in an umbrella organization I feel so you need to um, you need to stay away from leadership somewhat unless Allah puts that on that burden on you and just focus on yourself your family and um, and learning and uh, I mean the the kind of the, the question you're asked you know is um, yeah, I just don't feel, you know, that I, I can answer that because um, I'm just, I haven't had enough experience with that. Yeah. Okay, no, that's fair. Very diplomatic. Khair, and I think with that, yeah, we can uh, end this episode. So thanks, uh, Ustaz Muhammad, for taking your time out of, uh, you know, the day. You're quite a busy man, and we appreciate that. Good. It was actually somewhat cathartic to... Um, to just talk, I think, with young Muslims and see what's going on with you all. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do this. Jazakallah. Well, yeah. we, we hope to bring you back one day and to our listeners uh, once again. Yeah, thanks for stopping by the caravan, Sarai. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. If you enjoyed your stay at the caravan, Sarai, be sure to subscribe so you will be notified when a new episode is posted. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. We hope you enjoyed your stay with us and learned something new. Once again, thanks for stopping by the caravan, Sarai.